Hey there, welcome to another episode of Teams at Work. My name is Daria Gutnick, and I'm the CEO and co-founder of Bunch. I'm co-hosting the show with Anthony Rio, who is also my co-founder and our COO. We are on a mission to help anyone become a great leader. And together with our team, we're building an AI leadership coach to achieve exactly that. This podcast is for a new generation of leaders. Every episode, we talk to an inspiring guest who is running a high-performance team or a company to learn about their journey and what they do in their day-to-day to be an effective leader. So no matter if you're leading a team already or simply interested in becoming more effective at work, you can build your leadership skills by investing as little as two minutes a day with our AI leadership coach. If you're curious, download it for free on the Apple App Store today by simply searching Bunch Leadership Coach. Your journey starts with a quick assessment of what kind of leader you are today, and then you will receive personalized daily leadership tips to help you grow faster into the leader you want to become tomorrow. And our guest today is Pat Kua. Pat is a CTO, a tech advisor, a coach, and a mentor who worked for outstanding companies like ThoughtWorks and 26 and is now on a mission to help tech leaders to create environments in which their teams can thrive. We talked to Pat about what makes this leap into management so, so challenging for engineers and what they can do to succeed. Pat also shared tons of useful insights around anti-patterns that hold engineering leaders back and how to tackle those. And we also dove into how tech leaders are the shepherds of systems thinking and organizations, to use his words. And what I found particularly interesting was his learnings around how to ship quality at speed while scaling. All in all, it's a great, exciting episode. If you're into tech leadership or work with engineers day to day, this episode is for you. Hey, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Teams at Work. And today, Anthony and myself are here with Pat Kua. Hi, Pat. Hi. Nice to talk to you. Thanks for having me on today. Thank you so much for joining. Super exciting. I'll jump right into it. You do so many things. You write, you speak, you teach tech leadership. It's basically kind of your personal mission to help tech leaders grow. What do you think is special about it? Why is it different than other type of leadership? Tell us a bit about that. Great. Yeah, thanks. Um, so I think tech leadership is a essential skill in today's age where everything is influenced by tech. And I know that a lot of other people sort of struggle to sometimes get into management or leadership roles from other fields. But I think given the number of sort of technical people and the amount of tech, it's even more essential we grow further future technical leaders. Part of it is sort of inspired because I also struggled with this uh, going through my own uh, sort of technical leadership journey and realized that a lot of people don't get that support. And, you know, that's something that I felt that I sort of navigated through, overcame, and uh, when I sort of passed that forward, I've benefited from lots of other people's experience as a developer, as a technical person. So I also feel a responsibility to sort of pay it forward. And I think there's two things for this. Uh, One, which is like, I think technical leaders struggle because a lot of the skills that technical leaders have when they start off being a technical person don't automatically translate to being a technical leader. Let me give you a concrete example, right? So let's say that you're a, a designer. You know, as a designer, you're probably having to talk to people about your designs and you have to sort of listen to people and listen to feedback about that. That's actually a useful skill if people decide to move into leadership. As a developer, that's not necessarily something that people are used to practicing or is rewarded, right? So when people are writing code or producing a system, incorporating feedback from peers is seen as a minimum, but it's not a necessary task. 
And so the, the leap for technical leaders into a leadership role is a lot greater compared to other people because there's less transferable skills. Super interesting. You mentioned that you struggled with some of kind of the challenges as a tech person growing into management into leadership yourself. Can you tell us a little bit more about that or share an example that you kind of remember? Some people call it inflection moments or these like catalyzing moments. Was there anything like that for you? Not really, to be honest. I think for me, one of the things that I remember when I first stepped into my technical leader role was um, I think this happens to a lot of managers and leaders is they don't want to be the people that they were managed or led by who they didn't like working with, right? And so you kind of use an imprint of all the anti-patterns or bad examples that you've seen, and you kind of have an opportunity to not inflict that upon other people. And, you know, some of the things that I remember as a developer working with maybe less experienced technical leaders is, you know, Some people like to control exactly how you were going to write some code. So they would, you know, you might describe that as micromanagement, but they wouldn't just sort of dictate uh, which feature you're going to work on, but also how you're going to do that. And as a developer, one of the things that you really uh, enjoy or you hope is uh, the creativity of problem solving and solving it the way that you'd like to have. And obviously there's not much fun when somebody has already sort of designed all the classes and laid out exactly how you're going to do things because then you just feel like a robot typing in code that's already been pre-programmed. And so I think for me, um, the inflection point was actually more the opportunity to create an ideal environment, which I personally would like to thrive in. And so having worked with other people who I believe they were trying to do the best they could, but they just weren't prepared for the role effectively to avoid all the things that made my experience as a developer bad. And to actually create an environment where you know people had autonomy, where people could use their strengths, where they could learn from each other and really achieve their sort of maximum potential. And so for me, the inflection point was more the opportunity to create that sort of high-performing team. I have a question for you, but I think I, I have to, um, your, that comment begs the question, what is that environment for you? Describe that. I would love to know more about that moment and then sort of how you went about creating your ideal environment for what I'm assuming is your younger developer self to thrive in, right? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. Um, I can think of two examples. I'll, I'll talk about like an informal technical leadership role that I had. Uh, so there was a breakaway team of, of uh, sort of four people. None of us were officially tech leaders. We were all just developers. And there was like a little sub-project that we were given. Uh, it was actually an email refactoring project. To a certain degree, we all could just work as peers. But, um, you know, one of the things that I saw this as an opportunity for is that, you know, if there was something that needed doing, like how are we going to set up our testing framework? There was like silence. <laughs> and so, um, you know, I kind of saw that as an opportunity to say, well, I have opinions on this. Like, how about we do it this kind of way? The thing that I was trying to keep in mind there is that, you know, I'm not in that formal role. I also don't want to be the dominant tech lead telling everyone what to do. I want to invite everyone around. And so I think the thing that I really wanted to do was find out what people like doing, find out where people would like to grow, and also give them the opportunity to do that and to learn at the same time. So for me, there are some essentials of what I think about as a high-performing tech team is that um, people can apply their strengths, they can develop and work on things that they uh, would like to get better at. Um, and in this example, really good example, um, you know, one of the developers wasn't the strongest developer I'd ever worked with, but they were okay with pairing and working on features. 
he was really getting interested in user research. And we were building this application. It was a swing, so a, a thick client application. If you can imagine a whole bunch of developers running a client application, it wasn't the prettiest thing ever. <laughs> One of the things he asked to do was like, hey, I've been reading about this uh, sort of user research stuff. Like, how about we test it across a couple of people? And I was like, sounds great. Like, you know, what would that take? And he's like, oh, I just have to go over, ask somebody's time. We'll spend an afternoon. We'll ask them to try to use the application. And then we'll find out how easy or hard it is to use. And because they were felt they felt safe, so that psychological safety, and they felt like they could have the opportunity to apply an interest they had, our application and the thing that we built got a lot better. <laughs> it was, as you can imagine, developers designing interfaces is not like a sweet spot. And you know, his interest there was something that could really come through from that perspective. Really cool. Really cool. And I'm, I'm sure we're going to dive into sort of your journey more in the next couple of questions and, and in the rest of the episode. But I'd love to just take a quick walk across sort of the different functional roles. You mentioned at the beginning the contrast between sort of maybe tech, the leap from developer to tech leader. What do you think, and that being a very specific type of leap, you know, what are tech leads responsible, in your opinion, for that many other leaders maybe don't have to consider or why is that leap so much different? Yeah, it's a good question. So I think, firstly, there's no consistent definition of what a tech leader is in many companies. So part of it is kind of an unknown unknown. I see this sometimes where, you know, engineering managers, if you look at some teams, they're more maybe people-oriented engineering managers. Other engineering managers are expected to be that tech lead engineering manager. I think for one thing that is a key responsibility of what I'll describe as the classic tech lead role is there's an expectation that that person is going to help define the direction of the technical system. So it might be about the architecture or the patterns and responsible for the quality. And I think that's definitely a key element. And I think a lot of people expect um, the most senior developer, uh, which is often the person picked to be a tech lead, to know what good quality looks like, to have the best experience to help design that. And they probably do have a good understanding of that, but what they don't have the skills for are typically about influencing and building a team and working with other people in their team as a lead. And so they're the skills that are really necessary for that tech lead to really thrive. But a lot of people who are used to, you know, the person who gets to make the decisions is often the anti-pattern when they're actually in a technical leader role. They can't possibly be in every conversation. They have to spend a lot of time outside of the team talking to uh, people, so a lot of time in meetings, which is very different from what a developer would be doing where you know a lot of the time is spent at the keyboard, not really interacting with a lot of people. And so there's that sort of gap where I think tech leads are responsible for that technical system and quality, uh, trying to make sure that uh, the system could continue to be evolved over time. Uh, and to also make sure that all of the technical needs for a system are met. So what I mean by that is a lot of product people or business people often focus on user-facing features, but there are also characteristics of a system that if people haven't had that background, don't understand, takes a lot of effort. So building a resilient, secure, scalable system takes certain characteristics and every system has different needs. So the tech lead is kind of the shepherd for this uh, and to try to um, make sure that all of those needs are also met. Pat, you have given so many talks on a very, very interesting and burning topic for many people that are listening to the show, I assume, which is going from maker to multiplier. And I think particularly in the tech leadership realm, I think in general in tech, this is such a big challenge for someone who goes from an individual contributor and kind of being the the chief maker of something um, to an actual 
manager, coach, guide, whatever this role entails, right? Architect, you've just mentioned it. And so many challenges come with that transition. First and foremost, I think kind of finding focus time and understanding how can you actually design a schedule that helps you to be a little bit of a maker still in the beginning, since that's kind of part of the deal in most cases, but mostly also acquire all these new skills to coach others and facilitate conversations and meetings. And at the same time, also think about the big picture. Do you have any advice on how to navigate that transition or any type of takeaways and learnings you've made yourself that could help aspiring and current new engineering leaders and managers to to manage that challenge better? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I could probably speak for hours on what to do or other types of tips, but I'll try to keep it to a short answer here. Um, you know, I think the first thing to do is the mindset shift. Uh, and so that's what I kind of talk about when I'm talking about that maker to multiplier mode. So I think a lot of bad behaviors or anti-patterns of being a technical leader come because people are stuck in that maker mode. And so I think people have to recognize the first thing to do is you're no longer going to be judged by what you are personally creating and the quality of what you create uh, because you have a team. And so you're now responsible for not just you and the code that you produce or the feature that you produce, but all of the output and the effectiveness of the entire team. So, you know, your goal is no longer about the most complex problem that you've taken on made uh, or the most simplest algorithm you've come up with. You're responsible for every single thing that your team is doing and it's not about you anymore and what you're creating. And so your goal is to shift to that multiplier mindset of saying, okay, sometimes to be a multiplier, I'm going to have to sacrifice what I'm, you know, what I love, what I can create. So that gives people an opportunity to learn. Uh, it gives people an opportunity to apply their strengths. Uh, and it also gives them an opportunity to uh, do things that I probably don't have time to do because I'm in a lot of meetings. Uh, so, um, you know, a lot of people see that as giving something up, but I like to think of this as a sort of win-win situation because you as a tech lead, if you multiply somebody else in your team, your team gets stronger. It means that they can take on more complex problems without you having to worry about the quality of how they're producing things. And that means that you get time back in the long term as well. So, you know, you might need to work with somebody in the short term, uh, give them a lot of feedback about how something works or work with them to build a skill. But once they've learned that, then you don't have to get as involved the next time. And so that actually frees up your time in the long term. But that's only possible if you have that sort of mindset shift from maker to multiplier. I'll touch upon the other thing that you talked about, which is about that time management, because this is something that I think engineers in particular really struggle with, because typically in a product engineering team, time is kind of managed for them. So most teams these days are using some sort of Scrum or XP Kanban process where you know there's a backlog of work, iteration, a week or a sprint. They don't have to worry about planning their what they work on. It's kind of clear from the Kanban board or from their planning process about what's the next thing to do. When they make that leap into a leadership role, suddenly they'll have lots of people come to them and ask them for something or you know, information or another meeting request. And a lot of people in that role, don't they're not trained to prioritize. They're not trained to manage their time. And so the default reaction there is to say yes to everything, which then results in Lots of context switching, uh, you know, personal overload for themselves. So if they're also trying to stay hands-on, uh, what will typically happen with these first-time engineering leaders is that they'll try to do everything 
and then they'll try to respond to uh, every inbound request. And so, you know, they'll try to be coding. And if they don't find that time, it'll often end up in their evenings or weekends, which leads to sort of burnout. And so that's something that I work with a lot with very first time mentoring managers, which is trying to help them build their own process for managing their time and priorities, because it's not something that a lot of people working within the team have to think about so much. Really, really cool, Pat. That's um, a really vivid example. Real quick, like detour here. I've heard you mention this a couple of times here today already, this, this word. Now, I think I know what it means for the sake of just asking you um, and getting your take on it. I find it very fascinating. And maybe I'm hoping there's someone in the audience that finds it as fascinating as me. But you've used anti-pattern a couple of times here. And I'm interested in sort of what you mean by that and how, how you sort of come across this in your journey. It sounds like something you wanted to overcome or have designed your uh, journey to overcome. But I'd love to hear more about what this was and what it means specifically to sort of engineering leadership and the journey there. Yeah, this is probably uh, the engineering background in me coming out a little bit, to be honest. So, um, you know, we often talk about patterns in software. So um, you solve a problem and then you maybe solve a similar problem with uh, using a different technology, but you solve it using the same approach. And so that's the pattern behind it. Um, an anti-pattern is kind of like this pattern of behavior that you think is going to do something well, but actually has a negative consequence. So this is like a, um, you know, like maybe the anti-pattern is like, as a tech lead, um, I want to I wanna make sure that I deliver a good quality system. And in order to do that, I need to be involved in every problem. So I make sure that that problem is solved with the right level of quality that I expect. So that's kind of the positive intent in that I hope uh, I'm doing that. But what they don't realize is by being involved in every system, the unintended consequence, and that's the anti-pattern side, is that you're often then taking away maybe somebody's opportunity to solve that problem for them. And so you get your perhaps outcome, which is you're confident that the problem is going to be solved with the quality that you expect. But the negative consequence here is that you have somebody in your team who might start to be losing motivation because you just told them how to solve a problem for them and they don't feel like they're sort of worth is being added to the team. They're there as a code monkey rather than as a problem solver. And so that's kind of the term of an anti-pattern, I think, which is the, um, you know, has the positive intent, but often it ends up in the, a negative consequence from a systemic sort of perspective. No, I love that. I love that. And I think it's always, um, the reason I asked about it too is because I think those are very, sometimes those are the concepts that stick with folks after listening for an hour. You know what I mean? They'll recognize the anti-pattern in their own, their own, uh, in their own work. And, Am I mistaken or did you actually, was that example in perfect user story format? As an engineering leader, I do X, Y, and Z, therefore, you know, ABC. <laughs> I think it was. I didn't quite notice that myself, but maybe it's just a force of habit. <laughs> I think it was. It was beautiful, actually. Um, that was really good. Um, maybe no, one more question for my and then just to, I wanted to zoom in on this um, before I hand it back over to Daria. You mentioned this sort of like, I think there's a lot of stuff that a lot of literature that's come out lately about this, right? This sort of maker to multiplier, the making of a manager by Julie Zhao from Facebook, all these different things and all these different stories. Um, and sort of this, this, this moment in time where you realize you're not just responsible for yourself, but you're responsible for other people. And I love the example that the example of time management that you gave in sort of this almost this anti pattern of you think you're saying yes to everything is going to be a good thing, but in from a systemic perspective, it's just horrible. Do you have, when you zoom into sort of a, a newly minted engineering manager's influence responsibilities, let's put them for the, for the sake of example in a, you know, a five to seven person team. 
Um, what are some other anti-patterns in that, in that sort of newly minted position you've noticed and you try and help um, other engineering managers with? Because I think this is sort of like where the rubber meets the road, right? For a lot of listeners who are here listening for things that will really help them out in that situation and things to notice for that first step is observation and self-awareness anyway. So what other things have you, have you noticed over time? Yeah, so one uh, common anti-pattern that I see is, um, you know, when they're in that sort of first-time role, let's take the team of five to four or five sort of people. One common anti-pattern that some people can fall into is becoming like the defender for the team. The person who's going to protect the team from any inbound request uh, and the intent is good again, right? So they, they want to make sure that that team isn't distracted. They want to make sure that they're working on the highest possible things and um, they understand what's going on. What happens with this anti-pattern of being sort of the extreme defender is that sometimes the team becomes a bit detached from what's going on in the organization. So that might manifest in itself in that the, the engineering manager or the lead isn't necessarily passing on useful context because they're trying to protect the team from distractions around in the organization, right? So it might be that there's a real going on, um, the manager's involved in all of those conversations, but the team has no idea until the day that happens, right? So they've tried to defend the team from all the noise of what's going on, but actually it probably would have been useful, even though people would have been upset for a couple of weeks of going, oh, what's going on? Where's the state of this? Is that it doesn't come as a shock. And from an outsider perspective, I've worked with people like this before, where you know if you're trying to request something from the team, um, the defenders can come off as very aggressive to other people, right? So it's like, there is a single way of how you prioritize work for our team. You have to go to our planning meeting, right? Um, they're trying to be very strict with that sort of process, not realizing that actually, you know, um, leading and managing isn't a perfect process. You have to be flexible sometimes with accepting requests and can't be purist in how you approach every other person outside of that team. And so when I see that sort of anti-pattern, you know, what typically happens is I, I get feedback from other people uh, about how difficult it is to work with this engineering manager, or, you know, it's hard to get things done with this team because they're sort of almost dogmatic or pragmatic, uh, sorry, dogmatic um, or idealistic about their specific way of working. And once again, the intent is right of, you know, they want to protect the team, they want to create that good environment, but then they forget that part of their responsibility is also to make sure that they're helping other people in their organization and that it's not about us and them defending their team from everybody else who is seen as a baddie in the organization, but trying to make sure that you're all working towards the same goal as a team and organization. I want to actually follow up on this. I think another very interesting difference or shift in perspective that we've heard, I think, in one of the previous episodes with James Strunk, I believe, who is VP of engineering, was also that once you kind of transition from being a developer, being an engineer and into a more managerial type of role, you go away from this like very short loop of feedback. So as an engineer, you write some code, you commit the code, you can see whether it passes or fails. There is a peer review process. All of this is like always kind of less than 24 hours. So you never go to bed with like, I don't really know whether this went well. <laughs> I spent 16 hours on this, but now I don't know whether this is actually good. And I think when you move into kind of more the people exposed um, managerial roles, obviously the feedback loop is not only not so fast, but sometimes it's actually, it takes months until you get feedback. You hire someone, you've really trained them, you invest a lot of time. And then seven months later, it turns out that it wasn't a good fit. It didn't work. And here you sit and you're like, oh my God, how did I not notice this? We weren't doing a good job. I didn't notice it. I think this is a very common um, scenario probably happened to, to anyone who leads people in any type of discipline. But my question to you would be, 
did you figure out any kind of ways how you can actually help yourself to see whether you are making progress and how well you're doing as a tech leader? And were there any practices that you could share with our audience? Yeah, um, the scenario that you described is absolutely true, is that um, you know, particularly developers are used to and encouraged to have very small feedback loops, right? So when I was writing code, I want to be running those tests every single moment as much as I can. Um, and you don't get that sort of clear feedback. To be honest, I think the way that um, I've tried to help and how I cope with, my, with this uncertainty or long delay of feedback is just accepting that things take time. So I think understanding um, and a little bit of empathy about why feedback, certain feedback loops are going to take some time. So, you know, particularly when other people are involved, like you can't control when they're going to be doing something or taking action. And so there's a natural time that you have to be patient. So growing that patience and understanding that's just the nature of what this is. And particularly when you get other people involved, it's going to take a lot longer. The other thing that I would be thinking about is also, uh, are there any earlier indicators that you're sort of heading in the right direction. So I think for me, a principle of general management is trying to get a sense of what are early indicators that we're heading in the right sort of direction. And so, you know, if I'm thinking about a team, um, you know, one of the things that I've been looking about is, uh, you know, high engagement. That's something that you can't, you know, you might feel after a year you have a highly engaged team, but what are some indicators before that? One of them might be, you know, uh, I, I started off with this team and, um, you know, they were all really quiet. Uh, everyone's like waiting to be told what to do because that's kind of how they were trained. You know, over time, I might be looking at what can I do to uh, encourage people to speak and to, to talk. Um, and my favorite technique or tool here is basically to stay silent. Uh, so, you know, that awkward silence, somebody is going to fill in that void eventually. And you invite people to sort of make sure that they feel safe to contribute their idea. And so, you know, that over time might be, okay, after a week, you start to notice one or two people, you know, not waiting to be asked or not waiting for that uncomfortable silence, but they're starting to offer, uh, you know, their ideas and opinions. And so they're indicators that, you know, maybe we're getting a little bit more self-empowered. Um, and I'm trying to find little little indicators that give me a sense of progress. Um, I wouldn't say that you know, just because people speak freely in a stand-up that they're completely empowered, uh, but it's a small indicator along the, the long journey. Basically, you kind of look at the team as your system in a way, right? That you're impacting and you're influencing and you're trying to find kind of early indicators of rise in engagement, for instance, so kind of like team effectiveness to judge, am I actually doing a good job as a, as a tech leader of that team? Absolutely. Yeah. And you're right. Is that, yeah, I do look at things from a systems perspective. So um, is that, you know, the longer that you have feedback loop chains and the longer the chain is, it's going to take a long time for something to sort of oscillate through that system. But yeah, you're trying to find those indicators as early as possible. Awesome. And Pat, I would love to throw sort of, I think, what is for a lot of people, I think like the holy grail question. I think it reminds me a lot of, you know, you know, sort of almost even like personal fitness, the personal fitness world, there's like, you know, the get fit in 12 weeks kind of a thing. Um, and there's always these promises and, and, and whatnot. And I think when you're building an organization, it is, it is really in a lot of ways, very, very hard. And I think the question here is, and you've, you've led teams at a very large scale, you've led them at high speeds, you've worked for startups and, and, um, you know, non-startups, I guess, or anti-startups, but, um, you've worked for all different, various different types of organizations. The question, of course, that everyone's asking themselves is engineering or not engineering, um, C-level, not C-level. I mean, it could just be the team lead as well. How do you ensure that everyone's aligned and learnings travel quickly? But essentially, it's this sort of magic mix of being able to ship quality 
regardless of your domain, shipping quality. And Dari and I were just having a conversation about this yesterday, actually. Um, shipping quality at speed, right? I think it's, yeah, it's it's the ultimate sort of, what is that equation? And I think I haven't seen a YouTube video of, you know, ship quality at high speed in 12 weeks. I haven't seen that. Someone's got to be doing that out there. But like sort of what have you learned about how to maximize that? Because I think from a systems perspective, it is about week by week kind of maximizing it. There is no sort of hyper-efficient point where you just sort of there and it's sustainable, right? I'd love to hear your perspective on this and, and um, you know, from an engineering perspective, but also maybe what you've seen across other domains. I hear two questions in here. So I'm going to see if I understand it because the first one that I heard was, how do you make sure that people are aligned? Um, and then the second one that I heard was like, how do you, what are, what are some ways to go fast uh, with quality? At least that's what I heard. I don't know if that's right. That was quite complex. I agree. <laughs> no, no, that's correct. That's correct. It's kind of, I guess, like high performance equals quality at speed. Right. So, and then the prerequisite is alignment. But yeah, exactly that. What is that equation? Okay. Um, I'm going to add to the first one first, uh, which is about alignment. Now, when I think about organizations, um, one of the best books that I read very early on in my career was The Fifth Discipline. Uh, it's about systems thinking. It's about the learning organization. And unfortunately, most organizations aren't like that. It still remains the ideal, I believe. But I think there are some useful things in there that I... Um, it's been a long time since I read it, but uh, some things that I believe I remember from the book. And when I think about alignment, you know, I see it as it's the manager or leader's responsibility, or it's their authority, which means that they set goals and targets. And that means that they establish alignment. So if there's misalignment in an organization, um, and I've seen this in a team uh, as a developer, um, it's very difficult for somebody in that system to change that. And so in order to do that, you have to work with the people who own that goal or the structure to do that. So a concrete example, right? So um, very early on um, in my sort of career, um, I was working as a developer. I was working on a sort of feature as such. I was working sort of independently on the sort of feature. But one of my goals was to make sure I delivered this as quick as possible. But another person on that same team had a different feature, but in the same sort of area. Now, um, they were measured by how quickly they could deliver that feature. Now, what was difficult here is that we both had to keep touching the same database table and the same data context, right? And so um, one of the things that was really frustrating is that my feature required a change to this database table that was actually going to make their job a lot harder. And so this is actually something that was sort of set up by the development team or manager in that you know we were seen as two independent streams of work, optimized as individuals, not realizing actually there's a shared dependency. And until we address that shared dependency in an aligned way, we're probably going to be sub-optimizing if we're treating them as independents. And so in an organization, I'd be looking at leaders and managers who set these points of contention up. And so I'd be looking in an organization for the wrong incentives or conflicting incentives and the sort of dysfunctions that creates. Um, when I was consulting, another example um, that I remember is it's, it's less frequent today, but you probably still find organizations like this where you have like a development team and you have a large testing team. Um, and the testing team is rewarded for the number of bugs that they find. You know, that's how their measures are. Um, developers are measured by how quickly they complete a feature. Now, in those sorts of organizations, one terrible organization dysfunction that happens, misalignment, is, you know, testers will celebrate whenever they find bugs because they're doing their job well, right? As a developer, you don't like getting told that your stuff doesn't work. In fact, you know, you've got pressure for your managers to get more things working or finished. Uh, and those, those bugs that those testers keep reporting 
kind of distract you from your other goal that you have. Now, this is a poor system set up by managers. Um, and so, you know, a developer or a tester in that environment doesn't have a lot of control to be able to change that system, which is why I would look towards managers and leaders first at actually sort of changing it. So that's who I would focus on in thinking about where does misalignment come from? Unfortunately, it's a managers and leaders responsibility and they have to understand what negative behaviors are emerging from you know, the goal structure setting processes. Now the best sort of anti or the best medicine against this is probably when I've seen OKRs done right. Uh, now there's a lot of ways that OKRs go wrong, but you know, I think if everyone can understand how their work contributes to a bigger goal and how um, you know, other teams might be affecting a shared goal, um, then what you have is like a tree cascade of OKRs where everyone can trace their work up to a top-level company goal. Now, in a lot of organizations, that doesn't exist. Um, in that every team has their own goal, they focus on their own goal, and it doesn't really matter what everyone else in the organization does. Now, the reason why that's important and why that works if it's done well is sometimes the right thing to do is actually a team to say, hey, um, for us as an organization to reach this goal, it's better I sacrifice my team goal to help another team reach their thing or their goal because that will have the most impact, right? But if I'm measured by my own goal, there's no incentive for me to help another team out. And so that's the management and um, sort of leadership structure around how I would think about alignment uh, if you're going to do that. But it's very hard to do this well and at scale. The second question I want to address is around that quality and speed thing. Um, and so it's interesting because I think a lot of people see this as a trade-off, but there's been a lot of research that actually shows you can't go fast without quality. Uh, Martin Fowler has a really great article on his uh, website. I can't remember the name of it, but if you look for quality and speed, it becomes part of that. The other thing that happens a lot in sort of engineering management is the work that comes out from the state of DevOps and is wrapped up in the Accelerate book. So in that book, they talk about, uh, you know, some certain things like the number of deployment frequency, uh, the change failure rate, and there is a high correlation between organizations that can deploy really rapidly and a low change failure rate, which means quality and high performance. And so, you know, it's the kind of classic example of if you have to um, cut down a tree, uh, you can spend the hour cutting the tree down with a, with a dull axe, or you can spend, you know, the first sort of half hour sharpening your axe so you make your tree cutting experience a lot quicker. There are certain things that over the long term that poor quality actually means you end up fixing problems more so than actually delivering value. And particularly in software, it's really important to invest in the right types of quality in order to go at speed over the long term. I have so many follow-up questions on this, but the first and foremost <laughs> is what is the right type of quality? And I think you are like, that makes perfect sense. I've also just um, actually found the article, I think, of uh, Martin Fowler, which is, um, is high quality software worth the cost? We'll, we'll include this in the description of the episode. Coming at it from a, from a product lead, but also from a co-founder of a tech company perspective, obviously, Building depth is kind of part of the game, right? It's never a question of like, will you build depth? It's more a question of what kind of depth to build, when to address it, and what's the right way to navigate this. So could you go into a little bit more detail on like, what were your trade-offs that you learned that you would be recommend, like that you recommend to make versus where would you kind of steer away from building up too much depth. So what's the right type of quality to pay attention to? So, so quality is a perception. And so this is the hard thing is that it's different to different people. So I think one thing that um, I like to, to encourage people to think about 
Um, I wrote this in my Level Up newsletter a couple of weeks ago around this analogy of running a restaurant in a kitchen, right? So imagine we're locked down in Berlin, so you can't go into a restaurant. But imagine you have to go into a restaurant and you want to order some food. On the menu, you have some lovely dishes uh, and you, know, um, you want to order those dishes. Um, that's how I think about sort of features, right? You care about the outcome. You want to have something nice. On the menu, what you don't find is uh, whether or not you'd like to have a clean plate, whether or not you'd like to have, uh, you know, vegetables that are chopped up appropriately or not. You don't want to get involved in the steps of that. And this is one type of quality that I think I, I see a lot of teams do, which is my product manager won't let me write tests. My product manager won't let me write nice code. These are just basic hygiene factors that you should be estimating and shared expectation between you and your team about what is done work. So one type of quality that I think you shouldn't cut is basically unfinished work. And so that means that, you know, if you don't do that, um, typically uh, that builds up and that will actually distract you away from other sort of types of work. Now, there may be good reasons for doing some of that. And that's where uh, the other sort of thing to consider, I think, is um, an agreement about value. So one thing that typically happens in startups, which is completely understandable, is when you build a customer-facing feature, obviously that's something you probably want to focus, but there's maybe less value when you have five customers of building a very rigorous uh, customer services feature automation back office workflow, right? Um, that doesn't add a lot of value because for five people, probably just takes a, somebody to turn around, make a configuration change to fix something, than to build that sort of automation flow. So if I'm thinking about that sort of end-to-end lifecycle customer journey, that's a type of quality, but that's an explicit trade-off because there is a value change. Now, the hard thing is when um, you know, you've got that system, you've built the feature, you don't have that nice back office automation process and nice customer service interface to help service lots of customers. But as the number of customers increases, the constraints and the value of that now changes. So you know, one thing that you can use to quantify that is obviously the number of requests for fixing a type of problem. Um, and so there's value in actually saying, okay, you know, we're spending, I don't know, there's 10% of customer services dealing with this type of error. Maybe it's time now to actually automate that um, or to provide some way of actually helping with that feature. But I wouldn't call that sort of customer, I wouldn't call that sort of technical debt. That was an explicit trade-off that you made at the time. Um, and now, because your environment has a different sort of environment or different constraints, it now makes more sense and more value to invest the time to actually fix that as well. There are kind of a couple of things that I hope sort of help, uh, which is thinking about, you know, are you not doing unfinished work or are you actually making a deliberate trade-off and can you justify the value of that later? Awesome. Awesome. I think that that that, um, that description is hugely valuable, Pat, um, particularly for for, I think for myself. Personally, I think for us, but also I also feel like the yeah, the those are those hard won experiences, right? You don't you don't have that when you're just starting out. You're, you're right. A lot of people don't sort of have that. The the hard thing for technical people is they complain about technical debt, but they don't know how to translate it back into something that can be prioritizable, right? So the example of you know we haven't automated that back office process. A lot of technical people go ah like it's manual. We have to spend a lot of time writing scripts, blah 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 but they're not necessarily converting it back into something that business people or product people can easily prioritize. If you start then to create a model of, okay, how many customers are affected by this? How many service requests do we actually have as this? How much time is that taking? That becomes a lot easier to trade off, right? So when people are just talking about this random thing about technical debt, 
too many people have too many different ideas about what that is. But if you could actually say this feature, so be as specific as possible, is requiring 20% of our development time every fortnight to address all these types of categories, you know, it would take us an afternoon to fix and automate this. Does that not sound like it's worth it? That becomes a lot easier for people to prioritize. But that's also a skill for a lot of technical leaders um, of trying to understand how to communicate with non-technical people. Uh, not assume that just because they say technical debt is important that people will believe. Well, I, mu I must follow up on that, Pat, real quick. I had my last question prepped, but <laughs> I have to ask you one mini one now. What What is your, like, what, what has been maybe your hardest one lesson on that point, the communication point of technical communication to, you know, what is on paper objectively non-technical stakeholders? What is, what would be your one tip there? Oh, just one. <laughs> or, or more. I'm actually in the, in the middle of uh, beta testing a new uh, course called Communicate Like a CTO. Uh, so I'll give you some insights from that course. Awesome. Uh, so, so the mental model or the analogy I want people to use, even though we're speaking English, um, you know, and, and we believe that we can communicate with each other, when we're dealing with people from different disciplines, um, I encourage people to imagine that they're going to a foreign country. Right? So when you go into a country who speaks a different language, you don't speak to them in English, typically. Um, maybe the uh, naive people do, but you're going to have a lot of difficulty talking to people, assuming they understand your native language. So as an engineer, when I'm talking to business people, you know, I should try to avoid speaking engineer speak using terms that I have. I want to use the same language that business people will typically talk about. And um, you know, obviously, it takes a lot of time to understand it what motivates and the language that they use. But um, you know, as an example with business people, I think a lot of people think about sort of opportunity cost and risk or um, you know, time and money. Um, they're not talking about frameworks and tech debt and uh, continuous delivery. Uh, so it's trying to get familiar with the language that you know, the different disciplines use um, and treat it like going to a foreign country and trying to adapt yourself to their world rather than your own. So that would be like my primary tip. I love that. I love that. And I mean, on a personal level too, I actually really enjoy the the technical concepts because for some reason, maybe it's my systems thinking brain. I really like the concreteness to it. So I'm not surprised Fifth Discipline was like one of your, um, sounds like a foundational management book for you. I've read it. I love it. Um, I love how also in that book, he references physicists who have, you know, talked about the soft side of management and try to make it concrete. And that this Fifth Discipline is this sort of systems thinking approach. But on that note, I would love to know, other than that book, Pat, what other what other books, resources can be anything? Um, you've already shared a couple in this in this um, in this episode, but anything else that was sort of foundational to to a lot of these um, learnings and lessons and and your overall journey um, towards an engineering leader? Oh, uh, I read uh, Elia Eliyahu. I'm not quite sure how to say his name. Uh, Gold Rat's book of uh, the goal which is like the seminal book on theory of constraints. It has a manufacturing uh, sort of context and is a business novel, so that may or may not work for you. But the more popular one today is The Phoenix Project, which is set in a sort of more traditional IT sort of world, but uses the same sort of concept. But I really love the original book of the manufacturing because it gives you a good visual that you can sort of think about. And so for me, that was a really uh, sort of foundational book that really uh, sort of affected me very early on. Another one that I really enjoyed reading, it's a short read, a book about mediation called Getting to Yes. So I was reading this when I was doing a lot of facilitation, particularly of retrospectives, because one of the difficult things of retrospectives was trying to get agreement about what to do. 
I think mediation is a very useful skill for any engineering leader out there. The Getting to Yes book was such a pivotal, simple book that gave me a good idea of the difference between positional versus interest-based negotiation and the role of the mediator. And so that's something that I think was very, very useful for me uh, very early on in my sort of career. The more recent books um, that I often recommend to first-time engineering leaders would be um, Camille Fournier's The Manager's Path. That's a really great book. The Making of a Manager, uh, you know, that's also good. It's less relevant for engineering leaders as such. Um, and then the other one is uh, Michael Lopes' uh, Managing Humans, which is a tale, a set of humorous tales. Uh, he's a very good writer. Uh, he's a very good storyteller. Um, and one of his other nice creations for engineering leaders is a community called uh, the RANS Slack Leadership Group, I think. But if you go to his website, RANS in Repos, there's a link to be able to join that engineering community. Awesome list. And and Pat, I, I must say, we are literally, literally, I had to put my hand to my forehead there for a second. We're literally releasing a tip in the app called Positions versus Interests. And we're taking, you know, the, do you know the orange peel story from Getting to Yes? Uh, I can't remember it. Yeah. Two kids are fighting over an orange, but they, in fact, one wants the peel, one wants the orange itself for two different reasons. Oh, okay. We're, we're putting right, that yeah. in the app for 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 our, um, you know, all the uh, the aspiring leaders out there. We're putting that in the app literally this week, so um, like literally right, right on time. So we'll have to 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 cite you and reference you on that one as well. So awesome list. <laughs> Validated by that in reality. <laughs> oh, great. I mean, that's such a great example. And I, I forgot that was actually in that book. It's a long time since I read it, actually. Really cool. <laughs> I also, I actually haven't read the book yet. Um, I'm putting it absolutely on my list, but uh, really good example. Yeah. I think it's it, it, it also is such a good summary for so many misunderstandings, I think, between kind of tech and non-tech people. We kind of like want the same thing in the end, but like, or the same outcome, and we can actually make it happen together. We just like struggle so much on the way to to agree. It's been an awesome conversation, Pat. Um, expected nothing less, of course, but um, obviously a huge pleasure to have you on the podcast and have been able to listen to so many insights and so many learnings. Thank you so much for spending the time with us and thanks for all the work you do. I can only encourage everyone to check out Pat's work on patgoy.com and you're doing so many cool things. Do you want to kind of highlight anything in particular that people should be aware of? Uh, yeah, thank you very much, firstly, for having me. I've really enjoyed the discussion as well. Really great questions and uh, just love the discussion. Um, you know, I also love the the thing that you're doing. I think more leaders and more managers need help getting into, you know, their role and having that support. Um, in terms of, yeah, where people can find me, you mentioned my website. Um, I also run uh, a newsletter called Level Up. Uh, that's accessible at levelup.patqua.com. Uh, and then I also run uh, online courses at the techlead.academy. So, um, they're going to be self-driven courses. Um, the next one coming out, as I mentioned, is going to be Communicate Like a CTO. Thank you so much, Pat, and have a great rest of your day. Thank you very much. You too. Thanks for listening to Teams at Work. Let us know what your thoughts are on today's episode. You can find us on Twitter at Daria Gutnick and at Anthony A. Rio. Or simply follow Bunch at Bunch underscore HQ. And don't forget, subscribe if you like the episode, because we always have interesting guests, would join us and share valuable knowledge as well as actionable advice. At the beginning of the show, we did mention that we're building an AI leadership coach that helps you level up as a leader in just two minutes a day. Check us out on the Apple App Store and simply search Bunch Leadership Coach to find it. Try it out and let us know what you think. And that's a wrap. We are your hosts, Daria Gutnick and Anthony Rio, and we're excited to speak with you all soon. Till next time.